This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Come to the right man because I'm the candy man. Who can make a sunrise? Do you have a sweet tooth? I never used to have one growing up, but these days I find sweets just totally irresistible. In fact, this morning I've already had a donut. And truth be told, I had a brownie yesterday, and I'm having crepes tonight. Now, I'm not the only one who's been known to indulge. Take this sampling of New Yorkers, who I found in a park at 67th Street and 1st Avenue in Manhattan. All of my life as a child and as an adult, I love junk food. And junk food, 90% of it is sweets. You know, so that's not a good thing. But I, to this day, I'll eat, I'll eat penny candy that most people would turn their nose up at. You know, I just I love junk food. Oh, my, my favorite sweet is like candy. I like, I like to munch on candy. I'm not a sweet person. I don't drink sodas. I don't drink anything, but I like little candy sometimes. They have a, a, a peanut brittle stuff, this sweet peanut brittle. Um, I like that a lot. That's my favorite thing. Yeah. I'm not much of a sweet person. But, oh, maple syrup, does that count? Maple syrup. And I like butterscotch, too. But maple syrup, I have almost every day on something. I don't like sweet. I'm not too... I'd, I don't have a sweet tooth. Yeah, I didn't believe that last woman either. But if she's serious, she's in better shape than most of us. With diabetes and obesity on the rise, we're struggling to get sugar out of our diets and being amazed at where it's hidden. That wasn't true, though, in the 17th century. Back then, sugar was a luxury item, like silk or some spices, that was just beginning to become something much, much bigger. Over the next several centuries, sugar actually did a lot more than you might think to shape the way the world is today, especially the relationships between England and the Caribbean. Sugar's actually been a pretty hot topic for academics for a while now. The best-known example of that is the book Sweetness and Power by the anthropologist Sidney Mintz. But most people in the street aren't thinking that much about what's in their donut, or in the form of high-fructose corn syrup, in almost everything they eat. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are thinking a little bit more deeply about sugar with my guest Kim Hall. Hall's a professor of English at Fordham University, and she's working on a book about women and the growth of sugar in the 17th century. She joined me in the studio for what turned out to be a surprisingly weird conversation about something that we tend to take for granted. Kim Hall, welcome. Thank you. Now, how did you first become interested in sugar? Huh. It's a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Um, I wrote a book called Things of Darkness that was on the development of racial imagery in 15th and 16th century Britain. And in the course of working in that book, I came across a number of portraits of families or individuals with black servants serving coffee 
or chocolate to the families. And so I wanted, wanted to know about why it is that they needed to have these black servants serve these luxury goods. And then I realized that it was all, it all came down to sugar, that sugar was what, what made uh, coffee and uh, tea and chocolate palatable to, to the English. And so I kind of narrowed my focus specifically on sugar. And as I got into it, of course, it grew. It could be 10 books now. Um, but I'm, you know, a lot, as you said in your introduction, a lot of people have worked on sugar. But um, there's a lot of skimming over the roles that women played in both producing and consuming sugar. And so I really wanted to kind of get more information on that and, and figure out how it is, how women, you know, women played such a huge role in what was really a monumental change for England, both culturally and economically. So talk a little bit in a nutshell about what you do talk about in your book. You talk about different groups of women and the roles that they played. Could you describe that? Sure. Um, well, the first thing I talk about are mostly elite English women, I'll say, in the English household uh, from the 16th to the late 17th century. And I look at uh, the women's production of what are, what are called void foods or sweet meats for a course known as the banquet, what we would call now the dessert course. And so very often after an elaborate feast, they be a break and then uh, the setting up of a a display of sugared goods, mostly called March pains, but also kind of what they call wet sugar goods like uh, conserves and marmalades and that kind of thing. Often the, sh- the March pains were in very elaborate displays, you know, animals and people, all kinds of, of figures. And they might, al- they might also have poetry e- either inscribed on them or tucked into them on pieces of paper in some way. And women were by and large responsible for producing this course. And it was kind of mark of accomplishment to produce these goods. It was not only that you had, you know, that kind of incredible access to sugar, which was really, really expensive, but also it was a mark of their creativity. And so, you know, they people would walk around and as the 17th century developed, this uh, banquet would be served in a separate house set off from the main house. It called a banqueting room, sometimes turrets on top of the house and sometimes kind of um, open air, uh, I guess what we'd call gazebos outside. And so they'd, they'd walk around and look at them and taste them. And it'd be almonds and sweet wines and spices, which were also very expensive. And then a lot of cases, they would just destroy them. And there are these amazing descriptions of, you know, tables being overturned and and, you know, rose water being flung at each other and, you know, just the breaking up of all kind, all these sugar goods. And they would then give the, uh, the leftovers to the poor, to the people who would be at the gates of the elite house. You're looking. <laughs> that seems so foreign to me. Why would they do this? Um, well, it's a mark of just how, you know, if, if access to sugar is a mark of your elite status, then the ability not only to buy sugar and make things out of it, but then to destroy it and throw it away. If I have so much money, I can just throw it away. Then it's, you know, it's really a kind of um, incredible mark of status. Now, some people said to me, you know, couldn't it possibly be that they were on some kind of sugar high and they just went nuts? <laughs> so I won't discount that there, there might have been a physiological element in this as well. Um and I and, and it's this kind of you know I've never seen that kind of um, frenzied excess in a kind of elite home in a, in a description, but there are kind of numerous descriptions of it in country homes, but also in the palace at Whitehall. So it wasn't it was you know a fairly common practice with people who had that kind of money. So you have these incredibly wealthy people. It yes, sounds like who yes. have access to what then were just totally sumptuary goods, really right. luxury goods. Who else is involved? 
Um, well, so on, on one hand, you have these these elite women and their servants, you know, helping them make these goods. And then as the 17th century progresses, you have Afro-Caribbean women producing uh, sugar in the Caribbean. Black women and children constituted the largest group of slaves in the Caribbean for that early part of slavery. And I think our image of the kind of Caribbean slave in those days are pretty much of men, but it's really women. They're not doing that much domestic work because they weren't yet. They're just beginning to have the kind of elaborate household that would call for lots of domestic servants, but they're doing field work and they're processing cane. They're not, they're mostly in the fields, not necessarily in what they call the boiling house where the cane is turned into sugar, but they are a huge part of the kind of culture of sugar in the 17th century. And so what I'm trying to do is trying to give us a big picture of these kind of black women in uh, the Caribbean, kind of producing that circuit of sugar, and white women, on the other hand, you know, making yet another thing out of this sugar. And so there's a kind of long line of connection between these these women. So you're talking about these women who are producing sugar, and that's just sort of the facts of things. And then you talk about women who are making these elaborate sort of weird things out of sugar, these upper-class women who are obviously trying to make some kind of a statement. What is that all about? What's going on there in that sort of more constructed relationship with sugar. One of the things that's going on, I think, is that you have um, an elite group of women who are actually by by now, you know, many of them fairly well educated and quite learned, but there are not opportunities to publish. And not it's uh, kind of the circulating of women's writing is only beginning at this period, and so and there's still kind of a, t- a stigma attached. It's the kind of middle ground between what we now would consider elite production, the production of books, poems, dramas, that kind of thing, and what's always what women have always done in the home, which is to make things for consumption. And I think Mintz would say turning nature into culture, you know, turning the kind of raw goods of fruits and vegetables into the things we eat. For these women, I think it's a way to turn what they do in everyday arenas into kind of a high art, along you know with uh, kind of embroidery and the other kinds of arts women have. Confectionery seems to have been an art as well, to be able to do that in sugar, which is seen as kind of very fine and noble substance, kind of brings all of those things together for them. So these women, though, they're not the kinds of women who are necessarily, you know, frying up the bacon in a pan every day. Uh, no, no. This is really, I mean, like I said, it's. I think it's part of the kind of... Um, this other sphere of women's work, so um, embroidery and um, not knitting, but uh, needlepoint and, and those kinds of things that women learn to do that were part of their kind of womanly accomplishments. And in cookbooks, very often recipes will be attributed to certain women. So Lady Raleigh's Imperial Waters, when it comes to mind. But, you know, there's so, so if you look at early modern cookbooks, particularly the manuscript ones, it gives you a sense of kind of communities of women that you don't necessarily get from reading histories of the period. So they're clearly kind of tasting each other's food and exchanging uh, the recipes or what they call receipts um, amongst themselves. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty.
talking this morning about the history of sugar with Fordham professor Kim Hall. She's working on a book about women's role in popularizing sugar in the 17th century in England. I asked her what it is about looking at sugar that allows us to see something about our culture that we couldn't see otherwise. Sugar is, for me, it's an important topic because it's it's both very intimate in the sense that all foods are because, you know, you take it into your body and it changes you chemically in certain ways. People give it as gifts. People um, exchange it. But it's also a commodity. And so, therefore, it, it kind of connects people through that global traffic in goods. And it's one of the commodities that does transform the world. You know, Columbus took on his second voyage sugarcane, hoping it would grow in various places. So even in those early stages, there's this you know, desire to take the sugar economy from the Mediterranean into the New World where Spain and Portugal might have control over it. Um, so for me, it works on, on a lot of different levels on a very kind of personal and almost familial level. I had once, I was in a cab in London and this guy, when I, he asked me what I was doing, I told him I was working on this book on sugar and he said, well, maybe you can help me out because I, you know, I, everybody in my family has really bad teeth and I think it's my mother's fault because she fed us a lot of sugar. And so as I talked to him, it turned out that he lived near a biscuit or what we'd call a cookie factory. And his uncles who worked in the factory would bring home leftover cookies. And I'm sure they thought they were doing a good thing. I said, well, maybe it's not necessarily that it's your mother's fault, which is certainly every, what everybody wants to do, blame the mom because she's in control of the household. But maybe it's it was your class status because that's, you know, your family were all factory workers. And this is what they had access to to please their children. And so and he, he said, oh, I never thought about that. So maybe it's not mom's fault at all. <laughs> but it's but it does, you know, so, you know, so it, it, you know, kind of not not only works on a kind of uh, individual level, but also kind of um, cements relations or shapes relations amongst family members, um, which women are kind of central to. But as I said, you know, kind of then spreads out into the larger world in a way that we don't even think about. So it's a kind of connector for me. And, you know, the way, you know, if you think about it, your your clothes connect you with the people who produce them. But it's also kind of more personal in a way than your clothes because it is something that you, you actually kind of eat something that was in someone else's hands and was um, transformed. And sugar um, also kind of trans is transformed more dramatically than a lot of other pro- other products. I, I worked on a farm for a couple summers harvesting tobacco. And tobacco, to get from the tobacco leaf to the cigarette, there is some change, but it kind of looks essentially the same until it's ground up and, and put in the cigarette. But sugar looks dramatically different from the fields of cane to the kind of box of sugar you see on the table. And so there's also this kind of amazing kind of technological intervention that has to happen for cane to become sugar. To me, it seems to have a lot, a lot of elements of kind of modern society, the kind of global exchange of goods that, that, you know, is part of so much part of our daily conversation now, the use of technology and the interest in technological innovation, labor, and then also kind of family and individual expression. Now, you did not come at this from a perspective of history or anthropology or something like that. You are a literature person. What kinds of things did you look at here for your evidence? Well, I did look at, I, I do look at some of the things that historians and other people working in the field do and anthropologists look at, but I'm looking at them from a particularly literary perspective. So in addition to the cookbooks and things like that, as I've been teaching my uh, Renaissance literature courses, I, you know, I've been trying to pay attention for myself to the language of sweetness. In, in there. And so as an example, there's a, um, 
17th century woman poet, Amelia Lanier, who writes what's become a very well-known set of poems called Salve Deus Rex Judeorum. Amelia Lanier is kind of of a middling kind of class status, and she's writing to all of these elite women. And she describes her poetry as honey compared to the sugar of the Countess of Pembroke's uh, poetry. And so clearly using kind of sugar as a, and honey as kind of marks of class distinction, and which kind of is completely in line with what is happening historically in terms of women's access to sugar. So on one hand, I'm looking at, you know, specifically literary references to sugar. And one of the things Mintz talks about, although he doesn't go into a lot of detail, is the um, differentiation of sugar terms as they appear in the period. So, you know, for example, I think in Chaucer, there may be seven references to sugar. And I don't call me about that. Um, but, you know, in Shakespeare, there are any number of references to sugar. So the use of sugar as a marker of, you know, all kinds of things of class of sexuality, of um, gender relations, sugar becomes available as a metaphor in a way it was never before. One kind of common metaphor that comes up is the kind of use of candied phrases, candied words, to refer to kind of, you know, things that we would recognize as kind of... um, well, I guess we would, you know, my students would call it brown nosing, but, you know, but a, a kind of, of um, it's a phrase used to talk about a kind of language that is used to curry favor, but it's, it's, that is very elegant, but still almost, you know, that too much of it will make you sick. <laughs> um, and so that's a kind of expression in, that becomes increasingly common. Um, and also you have lots of people making references to things being sugared over. What, what does that mean? Um, that uh, things are kind of, covered with a kind of gloss of sugar or made made sweeter or made palatable, made something that, that you could kind of ingest um, that might otherwise not be. It seems from the way you're talking that people at this point are just obsessed with sugar. Why do people suddenly start thinking about it so much and wanting it so much when it wasn't even part of their lives before the 17th century? Well, it it's part of um, a a set of substances that become very, that are very precious and a kind of marks of aristocratic life. Various forms of spices, mace, um, certain types of pepper, cloves, ginger. And sugar is one of these and is seen kind of as a spice early on. But um, I think, you know, one shouldn't overlook its addictive properties <laughs> as well. That, you know, it seems as though once you've had sugar, you want more and you develop a kind of sweet tooth. And Queen Elizabeth actually was kind of famously known for her, her sweet tooth. So in one sense, it's on par with other kinds of luxury goods, fine cloths um, that are valuable because they're rare and because they are imported from kind of exotic and foreign places. But on the other hand, it is something that once you've had, it seems as if you, you want more and more. Um, as, you know, all kinds of Americans can attest to. And I can certainly say that sugar seems to lead to, to the desire for more sugar. Um, the the one interesting thing I f- that I find about sugar that I don't know you could say about these other spices is that they're, as sugar becomes more and more widely available, because, you know, once um, Barbados and Jamaica are established as sugar colonies, more and more people can have access to sugar. And so the response on the part of elite seems to be to consume more of it, not necessarily to eat it, but certainly to make more and more elaborate things to serve more and more of it at these banquets, but also then to make visible the connection to slavery. Um, and so 
in the early 18th century, you see sugar bowls with kind of ornate figures of African men and women on them, which to me seems to want to kind of to suggest that the origins of sugar, the, the kind of connection with slavery also makes it more valuable because it requires so much kind of human intervention and human labor. Now, of course, the abolitionists later in the 18th century kind of turn that on its head and use images of slavery to make sugar unpalatable. So sugar bowls are circulated saying, you know, once beet sugar is available so you can have sugar that's not made with slave labor, you can buy sugar bowls that say that this sugar was not made with the, bl- with the blood of African slaves. Why would associating sugar with the labor that was used to produce it have been desirable back then? Well, for one thing, you know, having many servants is also is always a mark of kind of <laughs> of one's power. Um, but blackness still in the early 17th century um, has still the mark of the exotic about it. And into the early 18th centuries, elite families had black servants who they kept fairly as kind of ornamental parts of their household. They would wear very expensive liveries, gold and silver collars rather than the kind of lead shackles you'd see in in the the fields. And so they have both this kind of um, this sense of power one has from controlling other people's labor and other people's lives, but also the kind of touch of the exotic and the kind of mystery. There's still a kind of idea that kind of blackness is kind of mysterious. And, you know, one doesn't know how people become black um, because, of course, they thought that blackness was an aberration rather than whiteness might be an aberration. Um, so there's this kind of both the kind of touch of the exotic and the power that one can can kind of command over other people. Now, you talk in your in your introduction to your book, which is the only part, by the way, that I've read because the book's not, <laughs> out, not yet, out yet, <laughs> um, about how women make mm-hmm. sugar a part of life in England. And clearly we've been talking about, you know, upper class women mm-hmm. preparing these what seem to me totally bizarre meals. But um, how did it diffuse down so that sugar became a part of everybody's life then? One phenomenon um that you can't really talk about a middle class in 17th century England, but you do have more and more people, a kind of merchant class, um, a kind of rising, you know, in England, they'd call them middling sort. So people who are not elite, but who are not also laborers. And one of the things that happens is as they accrue more wealth, they want to emulate the habits of the elite. So they can actually buy cookbooks that will say, this was a dinner that was served in uh, so in, in Lord so-and-so's household. And this was a meal that was a particular favorite of King James. And then they tried they, the ideas that they would make that and so they would then be kind of serving the same things that elite households you know, do. And that's one of the reasons why I think uh, the elites then begin consuming more and more because if middle, middling sorts of people can make the same kind of dishes, then they aren't special anymore. So the only thing you can do is make more and more dishes and serve more and more sweet meats and things like that. So you, you kind of grow it in scale rather than in innovation. And there's, there's lots of evidence that women were reading these manuals or you know, were trying to kind of emulate elite households. Now, the first chapter of your book has kind of a weird title. It's called Let Piercing Bullets Turn to Sugar Balls. Talk to me about what that sentence means. It's from a poem that is the preface to a book by a man named Hugh Platt called Delights for Ladies. And it's what they would call a receipt or recipe book. And it's this long poem that kind of draws on metaphors of war. Uh, to discuss sugar. So let piercing bullets turn to sugar balls. So let what would be bullets turn to kind of basically be made into remade into marzipan. I use it because <clears throat> for one thing, it's a very striking image, but also as a way to help the readers and you know help myself think about women's roles in nationalism. It's fairly 
new to think about nationalism in 16th, 17th century England anyway. But it's if you look at kind of theories on nationalism and a lot of the kind of philosophical discussion about nationalism, women are completely left out of, of most of this. And so I wanted this, you know, as an avenue to think about the ways, you know, how women are creating a sense of Englishness and how these, you know, the household, both in literature and in kind of domestic manuals and kind of uh, theories about the household, um, see the women as the kind of, you know, fundamental site for creating a household that models the idealized state. So kind of benevolent relations between servants and masters, but very finely hierarchized at the same time. So, you know, orderly, stable, thrifty, which is seen as an English value, um, despite the kind of excesses of sugar they're also supposed to be making. And women are supposed to kind of exercise those values, men as well, but you know, really kind of ideologically in these books, it's really kind of an appeal to women to kind of set the tone for this. And so the household becomes this kind of model. Hospitality is also another kind of key value for Eng- for, for the English at this time, or at least in, in these texts that I'm reading. And, you know, women are also kind of part of this kind of, especially elite women, open English household where people can come in and, you know, drink and be merry and, you know, and not drink to ex- excess. So it's, it's this kind of fine balance between moderation and excess, luxury and thrift that women have to kind of balance and in very kind of different difficult ways, I'd say. So so there's that's one aspect of nationalism. The other aspect is that cookbooks, which um, are primarily marketed to women, are also one of the earliest books printed in English. So you have at this time the kind of printing of books in vernacular languages rather than Latin and Greek. And so the kind of dispersal of the word literal, literally English through um, kind of cooking and through household arts, I think, is an important part of kind of um, solidifying an ideal of Englishness. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning, it's Cityscape. On today's show, what happens to all those candy wrappers when we're done with them? A look at trash in New York City on Cityscape with George Bodarki this morning at 7.30. We're talking today on Fordham Conversations about sugar. My guest is Kim Hall. She's a professor of English at Fordham, and she is working on a book about women and sugar in the 17th century. Now, we've been talking about sugar consumption in 17th century England, and we're here in 21st century America. But clearly there's some line that connects the two. Can you explain that and why it's worth looking at it to see something about ourselves? I think the line between what people in 17th century are doing in England and what we are doing here in the United States, that one of the things I would like to have come out of this book is for people to think about food in general and, you know, specific substances as very much kind of culturally shaped and that food kind of carries social, our social values, our individual values, the lines between you know what we, you know whoever that we is eat and what they eat are kind of one of those kind of subtle ways that uh, we differentiate ourselves from others, both in, as individuals and as as countries. And one kind of I think clear connection between the 17th century now is the kind of amazing access to new kinds of foodstuffs. And the, the 17th century, the, the 16th, 17th century is the beginning of the people moving out of their kind of local arenas in all kinds of facets of their life, what they eat, what they wear, their ability to imagine their horizons, that all gets broadened, you know, kind of in a way that's un, almost unimaginable now. And, you know, that is kind of the thing that kind of 
you know, jump starts, if you will, modernity. Um, um, and I think now we, we're very self-conscious about our ability to have access to a lot of things on a mass scale. I mean, if you read uh, the New York Times food section almost every week, it's about a different kind of food stuff that we have access to, new, what the next new flavor is, the new taste is. But it is the movement of kind of goods and peoples to support a certain lifestyle, I think is is kind of uh, new to the 17th century and kind of fundamental to who we are now. So you're saying what we have in common is sort of globalization. Yes, 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 exactly. Well, let me ask you one more question, um, and I'll close with this. This book that you're writing, is this a book about food or is it about something else? <laughs> Every time I think back on what I'm doing... It's it's it becomes something else. So first, it was a book on food. At this moment, and if you interview me next year, and hopefully I'll be way done with it, it might it might be something something else. But at this moment, it's about labor, <laughs> and it's about um, both the kind of women's labor in the household and making these things, and uh, women in the Caribbean's labor. But the way literature gets mobilized to make the labor for the labor palatable, it's because. Um, Although there is a kind of sense from historians that the English kind of accepted African slavery without protest, I am finding that there are, there's a lot of mobilization of all kinds of literary devices to make slavery look like traditional agriculture. And so um, for me, so, so at the moment, it's, it's really about, about all kinds of labor. Well, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. That was Fordham English professor Kim Hall. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. We are now podcasting the show. If you're interested in subscribing or if you just want to learn more, click on podcasts at the top of our homepage, wfuv.org. Up next on WFUV, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. I'm Nora Flaherty. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap! The job's a game! Every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.